Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Today's episode is sponsored by Estet. Estet Managed Services lowers clients' e-discovery spend, improving security and control over data. Estet makes your practice more powerful and profitable. See more at e-stet.com. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest leads a U.S. consultancy with an emphasis on accelerating profitable growth within professional services firms. He recently hosted a group of top business development and marketing leaders from the legal, private equity, and professional services industries for a day-long roundtable to discuss the latest trends in business development and marketing. Managing partner and CEO of Catapult Growth Partners, Doug Johnson, welcome to Left Foot. Nicole, it's great to be here with you today. I appreciate it. Doug, as noted, you recently hosted a group of professional services, marketing, and business development leaders for a day-long roundtable. Which trends did you hear from that group that were surprising to you? You know, Nicole, I've been doing these roundtables and conferences for about six years because there's so much interest across the different professional sectors. We pulled together, as you noted, folks from you know law firms, consulting, private equity, and other consulting firms to sort of you know share best practices and learn from one another. And it's interesting in the earlier days, the the law firms felt like they were the ones that were coming to these events trying to get as much information from the other professional service firms that they felt were sort of ahead of the curve and doing things differently. I think there's more parity there, and you know, the sophistication level is kind of becoming equalized across most of the professional services sectors. The trends are, are some of the same issues that these firms have been struggling with for, for five or 10 years. And that is, you know, how do they really differentiate themselves in the market? How do they utilize branding effectively? And then I think the biggest trend we're, we're hearing from, which isn't really surprising, but it's more of an evolution, is how do you start to put more of a business development slash sales focus within these firms? And how can these, these previous marketing leaders, you know, sort of begin to move into that area around business development? So I think that's the biggest trend. One of the things that's surprising is, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, is sort of the resurgence of the focus on branding and you know website redevelopment, things of that nature. And that could just be kind of the timing, but I'm, I'm a little surprised that's sort of becoming a, a topic uh, of interest again. That's surprising to me as well. And, and let's dig into it in, in a minute or two. Before we go there, we hear from these law firms that there is this back and forth about whether they should have professional service business developers on their staff, whether the partners should be doing that kind of work. And of course, the competition is just so intense out there amongst these law firms. There's technology, there's legal tech, there's other service providers in the mix. In your opinion, what should law firms be doing today that maybe they hadn't been focused on in the last few years to make sure that they're retaining the accounts that they have, the clients that they have, and they're actually securing new business? You know, what is the number one thing they should be focused on? Yeah, that's a great question because you're absolutely right. You know, since, since the recession six, seven years ago, the landscape has changed dramatically. Clients have gotten a lot more discerning, a lot more focused on cost containment. So you have that sort of pressure coming from the clients. And then you also have a lot more competition coming from sort of non-legal providers and technology. So it's become a much more focused game for law firms. And I think the challenge is that at the end of the day, you're never going to have a lot of sort of dedicated business development executives within a law firm. It's still going to be the purview of those lawyers that have to go out and develop those client relationships and build those relationships and, and develop that. So I think the number one thing that firms are realizing is that in the past, the old adage was you, if you do good work, the work will follow that. You know, that was always true for a long time. 
and it you can't get away from that. You still have to provide you know high quality work, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee any longer that work's going to roll in, the phone's going to ring. There are always going to be probably a few 10, 10 or 15 firms at the very top tier of the market that have such unique reputations and market status that that will continue to work in that model. But for everybody else, the number one thing is they've really got to help those lawyers within those firms become much better at client relationships, you know, business development, and understanding the needs of the clients from the client's perspective, not from the law firm perspective. The other challenge is, is realizing there is a 2080 rule. There's probably 20% of your lawyers are really going to be able to figure this out and get better at business development. You know, probably another 30, 40% can improve. And there's probably 20 to 30% that are going to be those, those service partners. Trying to get everybody to become a business developer, I think sometimes is a bit of a failing proposition because you, you can't change everybody that way. I think that's the thing is firms have got to focus on, you know, who are the 20% of our lawyers that really can get much better at this? How do we focus more time, energy, and resources to help them bring in the opportunities and grow the firm in that manner? We've been doing a general counsel series and we published the second episode today of an interview we did with counsel at Yahoo and the counsel at Cisco. And these were associate general counsel and, and folks really on the legal operations side. And one of the things that they noted in their interview was the that it really isn't about relationships. When you really come down to it, it really is about doing good work and having an effective cost structure and providing data to the clients about how they're able to get to a conclusion on a matter, get to an outcome and have that outcome be effectively priced. Are you hearing that at all? We say the relationships don't matter. They actually do matter. We know that. They don't want to work with someone who's not effective or caring about them as clients, but they're definitely more focused on outcomes and and costs and efficiencies. Anything you can share about your work with clients that are saying, can you help us? We've always grown our business based on relationships and things are changing. What are you hearing? Well, I think it's absolutely right. What we're seeing, especially in large corporations, is the CFOs have finally come to the legal department and said, look, every other department in you know our organization has gotten very focused on cost containment and efficiencies, and the legal department's sort of the last holdout. So there's enormous pressure coming on the general counsels you know, to do that. What's changed is lawyers used to have these great relationships with the general counsel. What they're failing to realize is while those relationships are strong and, and important in terms of maintaining that, the real decision maker and the real relationship key is that CFO who they oftentimes don't have any interaction with. And so they've got to be a lot more cognizant of their client as the general counsel, but the general counsel has his clients or her clients within that organization. And how can they be much more cognizant of you know cost containment, efficiencies, and really trying to be more streamlined? You know, I think that goes a long way. Even the fact that you're demonstrating some thoughts around that makes a huge difference. The fact that you're concerned about it, you know, there's still some firms out there that are really have a blind spot when it comes to this important matter. You know, it's interesting because we did a voice of the client for one of the top three global law firms recently, and you know, incredibly expensive rate. And we started talking to their clients. And out of the 30 clients that we interviewed, there's only one or two that really sort of squawked about their rates. I mean, everyone admitted that their rates were absolutely the top of the market. But what was interesting is the realization that this firm in this sector had such great knowledge that even though their rates were expensive, they were able to demonstrate this efficiency factor that they could get to resolution or provide such value that the overall sort of cost was probably more streamlined in that regard. And then the fact that they had such deep knowledge of the industries and the areas they were operating in mitigated to some extent some of those costs. If you're a lawyer and, and you're sort of in a commoditized or generalized sector, it is becoming much more apparent that you've got to be thinking about the cost issue and feeling that pressure. 
How about the data side of that? We're hearing we definitely outsource as much as we can to LPOs. We definitely use legal tech and we integrate legal tech for efficiency. The other thing we're hearing is come back to us with data. Come back to us with, and we've heard this from partners at Holland and Hart. We've heard it from folks at Safarth. We've heard it from lawyers in IP boutiques that they're really going to these clients with data and saying, we've analyzed matters that we've done for other clients. And this is the proximate cost that we're seeing in matters that look like this. We're able to come in and say, we can do that matter for this amount. And we will let you know if for some reason we're bumping up against constraints. Are you hearing that? Are you able to coach your clients around the fact that it's likely an expectation that you will approach a client with some kind of alternative fee arrangement that will have some boundaries around it? Is that part of the conversation or not quite there yet? Some firms are starting to get there. Others are still oblivious to that fact. What's interesting is even the firms that sort of the top tier where everyone sort of acknowledges, okay, you're very expensive, but we're assuming because you know this area so well that you're actually more efficient. There's really no data for that. So I think these firms that are still operating that sector are probably in the next couple of years going to feel that pressure from the client saying, look, you know, you're billing at $1,400 an hour. You're incredibly good at this. We're assuming that there's some efficiency because you, you kind of focus so well on this. But I even think those firms are going to have to back that up with some data and say, here's the overall cost of the outcome or here's sort of the return on investment analysis in terms of what we do for them. I think that's become more and more part of the conversation. You know, there's always going to be those, those opportunities where it truly is a litigation matter that is bet your company or such a substantial matter that cost issue is not that critical or an M&A transaction that's in the multi-billion dollar sector that the legal fees are $10, $15 million. It's still a rounding year in terms of the overall deal. But I think for everybody else, that sort of data and information is going to become more and more important. And now a word from our episode sponsor. For 10 years, Eastet has helped clients save money by streamlining e-discovery and document review processes. See why AM100 firms, Fortune 500 companies, and boutique firms love Eastet's simple pricing and customer service-centered approach on matters from IP to class actions to internal investigations. See more at e-stet.com. We're definitely hearing from big organizations, the majority of the matters that they're working on that are not bet the company, they're definitely looking at outcomes. And we've heard that from major retailers. We've heard it from tech companies. It is what they're being asked to present back to their finance team. The quote that I heard recently was the blank check no longer exists and they are looking at those costs and spending with more of a fine tooth comb. A comment on that? I think these client interviews we've been doing for a lot of our clients, I think we're sort of seeing the clients valuing law firms and making decisions, they kind of put it in three buckets. The first is sort of the capabilities of the law firm. And generally, they're assuming that if they're interviewing or talking to three law firms, they've all got that capability. And those are table stakes. The other two are the awareness of cost containment and efficiencies. Are you approaching it with some data? Do you have some process in place that can help us as a client validate that you are you know, a little bit more efficient? And then the third is sort of the age old one that I think has always been the issue that clients are always asking of their lawyers is it's great to have that technical capability as a lawyer. You know, We want you to really know our business better. And so I think if you can combine all three of those things, you've got that competitive edge and some differentiation in the marketplace. Get to know us, get to know our business, get to know our competition, get to know the restraints that we're working under. Strong lead in to the boutique firms. We are seeing boutique firms that are quite focused on a particular niche or particular area. We're seeing it in class action. We're seeing it in IP. There's some firms out there that are doing some very strong litigation work in specialty areas. Doug, are you getting calls from boutique firms that are saying, we've set up a 
boutique. We're all from big law. One of the things that we don't have at this point is a go-to-market strategy. Are you getting those calls or is that not a focus of the business you're doing? And, and if you are getting those calls, what is your straight on advice to those boutique firms? We're doing more and more work with those firms. Kind of go back to that question we had earlier, the conversation about what's surprising and just sort of the re-emphasis on branding and website development. I think all the big law firms are kind of going through that. Maybe it's just the fact that a lot of them didn't refresh their brand over the last five or six years and they're just getting back to it. But I think it's really challenging for these, you know, AmLaw 100 firms to kind of brand and differentiate themselves. Because, you know, when you've got 1,000 or 1,500 lawyers, it's pretty hard to say, you know, we're really niche oriented. And the boutiques have that advantage. And what we're seeing is these boutiques roll out of a big firm they get to a certain critical mass, maybe 20 or 30 lawyers. And all of a sudden now they realize that that narrow focus got them to a certain point. But now they've got to think about well, what's our strategy going forward? Do we continue to grow this firm or do we just sort of stay very focused? But what's really counterintuitive for a lot of these niche firms is they get to some level of success. And then there's always that temptation to say, what other services should we start to add? As opposed to saying, we should be really focused on what we do better than anybody else. And that's differentiating. I think as a consultant, oftentimes it's easier to work with these smaller niche oriented boutiques because they generally kind of know very specifically, you know, what they do, who they're going after, where they fit in the marketplace, and what the ideal client looks like to them. Absolutely agree. That allows them to differentiate versus in the large firm, each practice group is saying, hey, how are we going to differentiate ourselves in the market? Doug, if we can address that point about the website design and brand, talk about it a little bit more. I can tell you I hear a lot of mixed things. I do hear about some great work being done at firms around brand, around their website. The partners are seeing value in that. I'm also hearing a lot of partners say that if another marketing leader comes in and says that we have to adjust our brand or redo our site, that the vote is going to be no. It will not be well received, let's say that, as far as their future tenure. There had been this trend of a chief marketing officer comes in, says the first thing we're going to do is redo the website, redo the brand. We're going to spend a large chunk of change doing that. They're not hearing we have to invest in CRM or time to really look at more technology-based investments that are not website related. Any thoughts on that? I had a partner from a major firm say to me, if one more CMO comes in here and says we have to adjust our brand, slightly change our font, redo all the business cards and get new photos for LinkedIn, that will be the end of their support. Any comment? One of the challenges for the the CMO position is it's become a very complex position. When I talk to managing partners about that position, I say there's really sort of four, almost five components that that person has to have some expertise or capability and or at least knows how to manage it. You know, the first was sort of the traditional marketing, which is the branding, the communication, the PR, all that aspect. But now you, you've got sort of a layer of strategy that has to come to play into that. You have to have just you know good operations because most of these CMOs are running departments of 40, 50, 60 people. So you've just got to be a, a good project manager. The whole business development aspect and sales capability is another one that's developing that a lot of the CMOs have strong marketing backgrounds, but they don't necessarily have that sales business development background. And then you have the technology component, which has become really you know integrated. There's a tendency to rebrand and redo the website because it's sort of a visible manifestation of doing something. Before our website looked like this and now it looks like this, it's an improvement. But I think at some point, especially with these larger firms, there is a bit of a law of diminishing returns and the emphasis needs to be more on focusing strategy, you know, differentiating the marketplace and getting those lawyers out there with that messaging to the clients. And the new website, the new brand probably isn't going to impact that as much as really equipping the lawyers to be more self-sufficient in, in the business development area. So I think you're right. And I think also the cost of branding campaigns and, and website redesign has gotten really expensive for some of these big firms. And I think a lot of the 
lawyers are raising their eyebrows saying, you know, we're going to spend that kind of money. What's it going to do for us? So I think that's one of the challenges that CMOs have to face. We do a lot of work to try to figure out the gap analysis between what the lawyers want and expect and is it realistic and what the marketing department is delivering. And I think that's one of the challenges out there. Of course, as I mentioned, I hear that it's been an interesting set of feedback. We are talking to a lot of partners and we're asking those partners and they're partners in different phases of their careers. We are talking to partners that are in their later 50s, early 60s, thinking about transition and they're reflecting on their career. We're talking to partners in their 40s that are in the middle of their career and they're seeing technology come in and they have to invest in technology to stay efficient in the way that they're delivering to their clients. And then we, of course, we've got our new partners. Doug, let's talk about those partners that are in that 40-ish age and they're voting on technology. They're voting on the legal tech that their firm is investing in. Some of that tech will not pay off for a few years now, AI and things like that. What are you hearing that you think is innovative, either from the client interviews you're doing or from the clients that you're working with directly? What do you think are the good investments in that space? You've obviously got a lot of sophistication in terms of technology, in terms of you know running the firm, practice management, sort of the business of the firm. Clients are expecting some of that efficiency and visibility into billing and, and processing and things of that nature and internal legal project management. When you sort of look at the focus of marketing and business development and the investment in technology, I think that's another frustrating area for all these partners in that most of these firms have spent a lot of money on CRM systems, fairly expensive to install, maintain, and configure, and really haven't seen the results that they're expecting on that. And now there's sort of this push towards you know digital content media and technology, especially on the marketing and business development side, keeps proliferating. And I think one of the challenges is that CMOs are looking at you know what the Fortune 1000s are doing with some of these technologies and trying to apply that to the law firm environment, which doesn't always translate. I think one of the challenges there is trying to figure out how to create CRM systems or knowledge management systems so that the flow of information across the firm is more efficient. I mean, a lot of the big firms, it's still kind of difficult for them to know who has relationships to clients or prospective clients. And there's still a lot of that emailing going around saying, does anybody know you know so-and-so or does anybody know anybody at this firm? I think that's where the CRM tools are getting better, that it's more intuitive. It's picking up information sort of through the, the flow of emails and information on the lawyer's desk so that it becomes more intuitive to the lawyer. You know, I think that's a challenge with, with busy lawyers is trying to get them to use new technology. It's always tough. They only have so much time. I think that's the next focus is simplifying the technology span and getting a few things right so that the lawyers can begin to start using some of these tools more effectively. You know, we've seen that in so many parts of our life. The technology used to be complex and now it is easy to use and easy to configure and it's more intuitive. Many of these legal tech platforms start with something that is intuitive and we're hearing some good things about the technology that's rising to the top. Let's say it that way. It is becoming easier to use and integrate into the day-to-day lives of our lawyer clients. Doug, in our pre-interview chat, we talked about what's going on outside the U.S. In your work outside the U.S., what are you hearing? What are you seeing? Are the challenges the same? Are the opportunities the same? Or is there something unique that you're hearing from those non-U.S. clients? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we've done some work in the UK and a little bit in Europe. And then last year, I had the pleasure of working with the largest law firm based in Africa. And you know, I went to South Africa to meet with them thinking, well, this is going to be really different. Guess what? I found out the issues they're dealing with are the same kind of worldwide. And, and it really boils down to the issue of 
of increased competition. Everybody's just facing more entrants in the marketplaces and new competitors. So I think that's the trend that everyone is realizing. You know, it used to be that the magic circles in the UK were probably more sophisticated in terms of their client-facing communication, their marketing. They acted and looked more like, you know, a large consulting firm in terms of the way they brought information to their clients that was centric around their issues. I think that's a, a gap that the US firms have caught up with. One of the trends, especially outside the US, is probably a little bit more aggressive stance around business development. They've been more focused on that for a while. And, and I think are stronger in that area. They're stronger, I think, in client client relationship because they tend to have clients spread around the globe a little bit more. So I think that's another trend. One of the biggest trends we're seeing, and we're at a couple large global law firms are asking a, a lot about this. Outside the US, the big four are really scaling up their legal services once again. And if you look at the number of lawyers in the big four you know, outside the US, they are in the top 50 of the law firms in terms of just headcount. And they're better at integrating those services through sort of the whole delivery chain and better at sort of integrating service delivery to the clients. So I think that's one of the big trends that we're talking to a couple really large law firms. You know, how do we get better at large client management across the globe like the big four have done? And that's going to be one of the big pressure points in the next couple of years. You know, I have to say, as I've done work outside the U.S., the U.K., Australia, we have a lot of listeners in both of those countries. Business development marketing has definitely been on radar. When we get into countries throughout the rest of Europe, we actually did some interviews in Asia Pac. It was really interesting to hear that there is a new focus on trying to determine how to sell against competition, how to create a niche in a space. Doug, let's talk about new partners. When you're hearing from clients, when you're doing client interviews, when you're hearing from your law firm clients about getting their new partners comfortable with their business development responsibilities, what is the key advice that either your firm's providing or you're hearing that other consultants are providing out in this space to those new partners? I think what's interesting is a lot of these new partners are told, guess what? The business development skills we're asking you to develop and exercise are pretty similar to the skill set you have as a lawyer. It's good question asking, it's probing, it's understanding the issues, and really understanding the client's perspective. And if you can take that point of view, sort of demystify his business development, perhaps makes it a little bit less threatening. However, I think one of the challenges that a lot of these new partners face, most of these larger firms provide business development training, coaching, and support, which I think is great because oftentimes you can get these younger partners kind of over that hurdle and get them to realize that this is not as difficult as they thought and it just becomes part of your practice. One of the things they're missing is oftentimes some of the advice and insight is, is develop a network, get out, talk to a lot of people, get out from behind your desk, all great things, but there's not a lot of clarity around the strategy. So, you know, we talk to a lot of these younger partners about what really is your unique value proposition as an individual lawyer? How does that fit within your practice group and your firm? How does that support? Kind of like that Tom Peters book a few years ago, but brand you. What's your brand? What differentiates you? What do you want your practice to look like? And what's that strategy? And then once you've got that, then it makes more sense to build a network around that strategy. So for example, if you say, okay, I'm a corporate lawyer with a heavy emphasis in you know certain industry. Well, then if you look at your network and you've got a lot of people in your network that aren't in that industry, they're probably not going to help you build that book of business. So how do you develop the right contacts in that network? And if you don't have that clarity of strategy and that focus, then you sort of fall in that trap that sort of anybody in my network, anybody in LinkedIn that I connect with or anybody I meet with is a good contact. And they're frustrated because they say, well, I go to a lot of lunches and a lot of meetings, but I don't seem to be generating any business. But when you sort of peel it back, you're saying, well, you're actually talking to people that are probably not going to hire you for what you do. So I think that's one of the things is really helping them realize that at that individual level, they've got to have a real clear personal strategy and then obviously link that to their firm's benefits and, and how do they leverage that. And then that helps sort of clear up where they should be spending their time and energy. And 
you're right. I mean, we hear that all the time. How do I grow my business? And I'm out, I'm talking, I'm going to conferences, but they're not going to conferences where the people can actually afford their services or where there is that area of focus. Having a plan, having a go-to-market strategy as an individual. So Doug, as you look ahead five years and look down the road as to what is going to be happening, what we're going to be seeing in marketing and business development in the legal space, in professional services, anything that you think will occur that you foresee making a big impact 15 years ago, that would have been social media. Looking ahead five years, we didn't know what impact that would have. There's a lot of talk about how flat demand is for law firms and you know how competitive it is. Yet, if you look at the numbers that came out last year, the Amlaw 100 and 200 results, and then again this year, a lot of the firms are doing okay. Not blowing the doors off in terms of growth. There's a couple of firms out there that are actually doing exceedingly well. But the general sense I've got is we're all doing okay, even though there's a lot of concern that there's more competition on the horizon, there's artificial intelligence, there's a lot of changes in the business model. I think there's a little bit of complacency and a lull sort of setting in that, you know, the recession reset things and took us four or five years to kind of get back to equilibrium. There'll be another recession here in the next couple of years, probably. And I think at that point, a number of firms are going to get caught flat-footed once again. So I think one of the trends that we're thinking about and how do law firms begin to think about themselves as more of a consulting professional services? You know, how do we go out to our clients and talk about their issues, their challenges, their business and then link that back to our core capabilities, much like you know the accounting firms do, the consulting firms do. And I think that's one of the trends you're going to see in, in terms of changing. The other, I think, is the whole content thought leadership. I mean, it's gotten really easy to put content out, obviously, and every firm is sort of pumping out a lot of content. I think that game has changed in terms of how do you really put out high quality content that's really, really focused on you know who you're going after and getting much more strategic on that. And how does that really create lead generation? The third area, some of the bigger firms now beginning to roll out is sort of this idea that we are going to start hiring dedicated business development executives, people that are professional salespeople that have been in selling professional services most of their career. A lot of these people are former lawyers or non-practicing lawyers. And how do we start to embed those people within our firm to be player coaches that not only are they helping sort of support, train, and mentor our, our lawyers, but how are they going on in the market with our lawyers? How are they sort of coaching and, and training and helping in real time? And I think you're going to see more of that. Obviously, the big consulting firms and the big four have done that for years, but I think you're going to see more law firms doing that. And even some of the small boutiques are hiring people like that that can really help keep the focus on the marketplace while the lawyers get busy with matters. So I think those are sort of the three areas that I think that five years from now, we're going to see more emphasis on. Absolutely agree. And I've had more than one lawyer say to me, can't you just do this for me? Sure. Happy to help do that for you. Informative interview, Doug. Any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye? I heard someone one time say that we oftentimes overestimate what we can accomplish in a year. We have our annual New Year's resolutions, but we underestimate what we can accomplish in five years. And so I think I think a lot of firms are trying to do a lot of change in short periods of time, but I think they do have to look out and look at the industry five years from now and really begin to start thinking around the corner. Where will we be? What's competition going to look like? What will reset if we have another recession? And really thinking about strategy. I've told a lot of clients that prior to the recession for law firms, I don't think strategy was that critical. Everyone kept growing at a sort of reasonable rate. But I think going forward... A clear focus strategy is going to be more and more important than ever. Absolutely agree. Doug, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. You bet, Nicole. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. Be sure to visit www.leftfoot.net to access show notes, sign up for our weekday series, and embrace what it means to lead with the left foot. 